I'm speaking to you today on this first Sunday of Lent, and the readings for today are Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 29, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Now, I did say last week that I think children belong in church, and uh, they should be part of the service. However, today's topics uh, may be uh, not appropriate for our young listeners. As I said, today's Old Testament lesson is taken from Genesis chapter 19, and it's the famous story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is an enduring symbol of God's judgment and wrath. Now, this used to be a well-known story, but with the decline of biblical literacy and Bible reading, I'm not so sure. Now, as recently as 1962, it was the subject of a Hollywood feature film, but 1962 is no longer that recent. This particular chapter, this particular story, has even been expunged from some of our contemporary Sunday lectionaries. So if you are uh, at church today that's using the revised common lectionary, you won't hear this reading and you won't ever hear it over the course of three years. Sodom became the name of the city that we're talking about today that's destroyed. Sodom became a byword in the English and other languages lending itself to words like sodomy, which was used to label perverse and illegal sex acts, and sodomite to label those who practice them. If you're hearing me say these words, you might even be shuddering, uh, as if I've said something that ought not to be said. Uh, Certain words come to mind, right, that we used to use to classify people. Uh, You may hear these words, this word is derogatory. As recently, however, as 2003, 20 U.S. states, one U.S. territory, and the Uniform Code of Military Justice had anti-sodomy laws on the books until the Supreme Court struck them down. But again, culturally speaking, 2003 seems like a long time ago. Given the institutionalization of the sexual revolution, a revolution that began in the 1960s and, and, and that is now established in law, It is not surprising that both the word and the story of the city that lent its name to criminalized sex has faded from common cultural memory. The text of Genesis 19 is talking about the attempted gang rape of two angelic visitors to Lot's house by the male citizens of Sodom. And it is saying that this attempted rape is evidence of the outcry that has reached God's ears about the sins committed in Sodom, it's evidence that this outcry is true and that therefore the destruction of the city as punishment for its crimes is warranted. A chapter before in Genesis chapter 18 verse 21, God says, I will go down to see whether they, the inhabitants of Sodom, have done altogether according to the outcry which has come to me and if not I will know. So God has received a complaint about what the people, the men of Sodom, are doing, uh, and he's going to go down and investigate. The rest of Genesis 18 details Abraham's famous attempt to intercede for Sodom, asking the Lord to spare the city for the sake of the good people who surely must still live there, right? There must still be some good people there. So Abraham asks a very important question. He asks God, Wilt thou indeed destroy the righteous with the wicked? Are you going to punish the good along with the bad? Have you ever heard of the idea of collective punishment? It's a common tactic that's used in counterinsurgency campaigns. I was listening to a podcast the other day about the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict and the 
the British certainly made good use of the uh, uh, counterinsurgency tactic of collective punishment. Sometimes uh, you know, you'd have an, error, an Arab uh, rebel, Arab cell that might shoot at a British uh, convoy. Uh, and, and head for the hills, but instead of uh, instead of uh, pursuing the actual perpetrators of that violence, the convoy would turn aside to the nearest Arab village and destroy it. Um, and so that's the idea of collective punishment. So these biblical texts are dealing with concepts that are still very real today. Um, and it's a good question that Abraham asks God. Are you going to be in this case, like the British army, are you going to punish the good along with the bad, the innocent along with the guilty? We've adopted this principle in our own jurisprudence, haven't we? We say, let the, punish, let the punishment fit the crime. And that's a good principle for us to follow, even, even if it's not always achieved. I think in this case, however, Abraham's concern is a little bit more personal, uh, closer to home. He's worried about his nephew, Lot, and Lot's family who live in Sodom, and he's, they're innocent and do not deserve to be destroyed. Or even if they're not entirely innocent, as the uh, story of Lot's wife tells us, and later his daughters, these are not particularly innocent, godly people. Lot's wife is turned into a pillar of salt uh, when she turns, bound, turns around and looks back on the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And with regret, she misses her life there. And the, Lot's two daughters uh, commit incest with their father after getting him drunk. Uh, so these are not godly people. Um, uh, so I think you have to look at why is Abraham bothering to intercede here? And I think it's got to be. The answer has to lie in the fact of Abraham's blood relationship to Lot. Uh, Lot is covered, if you will, by Abraham's blood, blood tie, kinship. So Abraham successfully bargains with God, reducing the number of godly inhabitants needed to spare the city from 50 down to 10. And God replies, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. However, as we see, the story goes, presumably not even 10 righteous citizens can be found in Sodom. It seems that it is only out of God's steadfast love for Abraham that Lot and his family are spared. And, and as I said, that, saves, that says something. It says something about why... Uh, uh, Lot is saved, and it also says something about the nature of God's covenant with Abraham. Lot and his family are saved from destruction, not of their own merit, not by their own doing, but gratuitously. We might say, as Christians, we might say, by grace, uh, as a knock-on effect of God's covenant with Lot's uncle, Abraham. Genesis chapter 19, verse 16 says, The men seized him, Lot, and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him forth and set him outside the city. Now this mirrors how we are saved in Christ, not because of our own merit, but grabbed and pulled to safety by the new covenant God establishes with his son, Jesus Christ. If, if Lot is saved by a blood relationship with Abraham, then, then we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for our salvation and to inaugurate a new covenant between God and his elect, his chosen people, his church. And we're invited to enjoy the benefits of this covenant, uh, all the blessings of it, which include physical salvation, the deliverance of our bodies at, uh, at the resurrection, um, and, and, and benefits in this life. Uh, um, we will ex experience positive benefits from, from uh, following God's law and keeping his commandments in this life. When the Israelites are led out of Egypt and God gives the law to Moses, he promises that they will experience none of the diseases of Egypt, 
when if they keep and follow his law. And I think that's true. As we go forward and further in this sermon, I think you'll see how the keeping of God's law has tangible physical benefits for those uh, who live in the here and now. And it's not just a, it's not just a concept that you get a reward in heaven. Now, we are invited to enjoy the benefits of this. Now, we are invited to enjoy the benefits of this covenant, provided provide we keep it, uh, provided we keep its terms in our hearts and our with our bodies. Now, incidentally, I think this is why church membership and admission to the sacraments needs to be carefully stewarded. The relationship established in baptism between Christ and a believer means something to God, just as Lot's blood relationship to Abraham meant something to God. So the sacraments are not something to be entered into lightly. We're not as, we, 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 we shouldn't approach baptism uh, as some sort of rite of initiation uh, uh, for our children um, if we don't have the faith that is required to bring them up in that faith and see to it that what is uh, the seed that is planted therein uh, grows into a lively faith. We don't just, we shouldn't just have our children baptized for the sake of having them baptized or to fulfill some sort of family custom or expectation. And neither should we go to the table to receive communion um, if we're not ready for it, if we haven't uh, taken the time to reconcile ourselves to God and to our neighbor to examine our conscience. Um, communion is not something that is just given, that should be just be given to give be given out it, it signifies something it signifies the effect of the covenant it signifies the, the the means of grace by which we are saved and if we are not living and acting in a way that accords with that we shouldn't take communion we should stay away we should um, speak to our, our our clergyman our minister we should get right with god so what was the outcry that reached god's ears what is the sin of sodom that brought down its fiery destruction from on high it was widespread, total, all-inclusive sexual depravity. That's what it was. It's not, it wasn't some sin about you know, failure to render hospitality. Lot was in the middle of rendering hospitality to these, to these uh, strangers. Uh, the, the sin was sexual, widespread, total, all-inclusive sexual depravity. Specifically male sexual depravity. It was the attempted gang rape of two men by a large group of men. After Lot had fed and entertained his two distinguished guests and they are preparing to go to sleep, we read in Genesis chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, that the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man. The Bible is often sparse with its words, but it's not, it's, it's not, uh, it's not sparing them here. Uh, the, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man. Remember, that's important because Abraham made a bargain with God, right, about sparing the city for the sake of a few righteous, ten righteous. Surrounded the house and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, when I was in high school, when I was in high school, we learned that we learned in scripture class that the word know was Bible speak for sexual intercourse. The Hebrew word yada means to know. And in this verse, as well as in verse 8, when Lot tries to entice the mob to have their way with his virgin daughters instead. Now think about that. I mean, this is how, uh, this is why this story can't be a, a story of God's judgment for an abuse of hospitality. Abraham, or Lot is, is willing even to sacrifice his virgin daughters um, to uphold the principle of hospitality that his guests be not defiled. 
Um, so he, he offers his virgin daughters to these to these uh, men instead, and the word the Hebrew word yada is used there, and uh, to, to, which means to know by personal experience, or in this case, it would mean to to know someone personally, intimately through carnal experience. So there's no doubt as to what's going on here. It's very clear that to Lot and and uh, what the mob wants, and there is no hiding that meaning from us modern readers either. It's important to point out that verse 4 is specific, that the crime is being committed by all the men of Sodom. I, I emphasized that earlier, both young and old, all the people to the last man. In other words, Abraham deal, Abraham's deal with God is off. There are not, not even 10 righteous men to be found in the city. Now, you may be wondering about the women. But this seems to be one of those cases where where the word where men the word men, uh, which can be an exclusive term as uh, sorry which can be an inclusive term as in as in mankind is limited to just males. Um, I shudder to think how the women would have been used and abused in a city peopled by such men, uh, and perhaps there were no perhaps there were no women left in Sodom. Perhaps it was the women who raised the outcry to to God in the first place. Now, I, I want to stop here and talk about the elephant in the room, which is homosexuality. There's a, a, what we might call revisionist theologians, those who want to, um, or have, I would say at this point, successfully changed the, the received teaching of the church, the, 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 the clear uh, meaning of the text of the Bible, uh, what, was the, what we might call the Catholic faith, which, which means according to the whole, uh, that which was everywhere and always believed in time and in space. They have successfully revised many uh, churches' teachings on, on homosexuality. And one of the ways they've done that is to say that this story, which is often used as what they call a clobber text, uh, which is used when, when people are debating this issue, to bring, they bring this story out and see, here, God destroyed Sodom because of homosexuals. And the revisionists will say, well, that's not true, because this story can't possibly be about homosexual or gay men. And strictly speaking, I suppose that's true because homosexual as a, as a clinical term was developed by Sigmund Freud and, and others in the 19th and 20th centuries. And uh, psychoanalysts used the label homosexual as a clinical description of, of a disordered sexuality. Now, uh, we no longer call it disordered. Later, the characterization disordered was dropped and replaced with identity. And, uh, and and sexual identities are held out to us today uh, as if they are morally neutral, uh, if not positive, and, and descriptors. A whole month apparently now is just dedicated to the uh, the, the the celebration of these descriptors. Um, so I would I would say that they're not even held out. These identities are not even held out as as neutral, but as positive, as as something to for culture and society to celebrate. And and uh, you know certainly we do. I think can't even take out cash from your cash machine in, in June without, you know, being invited to participate in, 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 in the celebration of these identities, right? Uh, corporate branding has, has embraced it. So the revisionists will say, since these are modern concepts with, root, with, uh, with, with roots, roots in Freud's atheism, it would be an example of reading into the text to say that the men of Sodom were homosexual or gay. Reading into the text is something responsible students of the Bible will not do. It's called eisegesis. It's, it's, it's called going to the text with your own agenda and reading what you want into it. It's a kind of uh, subjective reading or, or even psychological projection, if you will. So because of this, revisionists will say that the story has nothing to say about contemporary sexual mores. 
Uh, how many times have you heard people say the Bible doesn't mention homosexuality or Jesus has, or, or, you know, often it's Jesus. Jesus never mentioned same-sex marriage. The word homosexual never shows up in the Greek or the Hebrew. Well, yeah, okay, that's true. But but uh, but what what is the revisionist method doing here? I think it's pretty clear what the revision what the revisionist method is doing. It's a kind of sleight of hand that silences or attempts to silence the word of God. It tries to prevent that word from speaking to us. Regarding the men of Sod- Sodom, the revisionists kind of like channeling Obi Wan Kenobi in Star Wars, the first Star Wars movie. They might say something. You know, remember the Jedi mind trick? Is sort of like Obi Wan saying, "These are not the Sodomites you're looking for." Right? Uh, it's it's uh, this is how the revisionists operate. They, they, they play a kind of mind game, a bait and switch. And sex is not the only sphere where, sphere where this method is used. People will often say that the Bible is not a science book. Uh, and they do that to skirt or ignore or downplay or silence the, what the Bible has to say about creation and to ignore or sweep aside the plain meaning of the creation stories in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The plain meaning of those, of, of those stories is that evolution cannot possibly be true if God created every species with specific intent and purpose and set the boundaries between them. Uh, read Genesis chapter 1, 24 and 25. It reads, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, Cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and cattle according to their kinds and everything that creeps upon the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So you see that the uh, whether or not you try to explain away these stories as myths or legends or just-so stories, uh, fine. Even if you explain them away that way, the meaning, the intent is still clear. God created specific orders, specific species, specific kinds, and he set boundaries around them. And they, um, they're not to be adulterated. They're not to be mixed with. They're not to be toyed with. They're not to be played with. And they certainly don't evolve into something else. They don't, one species, one kind is good in and of its own right. According to God, it doesn't transform, evolve into something else. Monkeys don't become men, and men do not become, evolve into angels. So the revisionist premise is that the Bible does not speak using contemporary categories. Since it, since it does not speak according, uh, using contemporary categories, it therefore does not and cannot speak to contemporary issues at all. Let me say that again. The Bible isn't using the categories and the framework that we use today, so therefore it, it cannot be applied or speak to the issues of today. Silencing the word of God is, is the act of a depraved mind. The the depraved mind hears the truth and ignores it. Worse, it hates the truth and fights hard to suppress it. Now, the Christian doctrine of the depraved mind comes from Paul, and it is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Writing over 1,900 years after the events of Genesis 19, Paul not only had the biblical story of the depravity of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in mind, but could also see the effects of a reprobate mind at work in the idolatrous pagan culture surrounding him. One of the effects of idolatry is sexual disorder. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1. He says, for, the, for this reason, and he's referring to their idolatry, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving it in their own persons, the due penalty for their error. Now, if you haven't heard that before, it's because Romans chapter 1, this passage is not read in any of the lectionaries that you're going to hear in the three-year Sunday cycle in the modern church. 
Confusion, sexual and otherwise, is the effect of idolatry. Why? Because an idol does not tell the truth about God. An idol does not tell the truth about God. Silencing the word of God is the act of a depraved mind. The depraved mind hears the truth and ignores it. Worse, it hates the truth and fights hard to suppress it. This is why images are forbidden in Christian worship. Because images depicting God do not tell the truth about him. Even pictures of Jesus, at, at best, only represent an artist's impression of his human nature, his human likeness, and that is only half of who he is. Idolaters exchange, as Paul writes, the truth about God for a lie. Is it any wonder, then, that they will also exchange the truth about sex for what Paul calls, calls dishonorable passions? Now, you might be saying that was then and this is now. Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, the idols of Rome have long since been cast down. Paganism is dead, and even attempts to revive it, no matter how successful, will lack continuity with an order that perished some 1,700 years ago. Here again, the revisionist will say that because Paul did not think in the categories of today's sexual identities, his words cannot be read as a condemnation of them. It's Obi-Wan again. These are not the identities you're looking for. And I'll just add that this does not stop revisionists from interrogating Paul using modern critical categories like race, race, gender, and sexuality. Paul will be examined and cross-examined using all these modern critical methods and apparatus, apparati, but the revisionists will never allow him to speak to his own defense, speak in his own defense. The depraved mind is given to idolatry and captured by it precisely because that mind so identifies itself with the idols of its own making. I'll say that again. The depraved mind is given to idolatry and captured by it precisely because that mind so identifies itself with the idols of its own making. The Bible speaks to the captured mind. The Bible is a sustained polemic against the depraved, captured mind. And in its polemic, the Bible develops a category that we use a lot today, identity. Now, identity means sameness, oneness, state of being the same. When Paul writes, they become futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools, he is describing the process by which the human mind debases itself when it identifies with anything other than the truth. Psalm 115 makes the connection between idol and idolater explicit. Psalm 115 reads, Those who make them idols are like them, so are all who put their trust in them. Those who make them are like them, so are all who trust in them. In other words, those who make idols inevitably, inexorably, come to identify with them. Embracing any likeness other than the likeness of God as your identity is idolatry. It is the sign of a depraved mind. But the sign of, a, of the redeemed mind and its likeness the, 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 sign of, the sign of the redeemed mind is its likeness to, its identity in Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that Christians are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. The depraved mind swims in confusion and disorder, sexual and otherwise, just as a fish swims in water. The redeemed mind reflects the glory of God. Now, we turn today to today's gospel lesson, which gives us a lesson in applied glory. 
At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus goes into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days. At the end of this 40-day fast, he is tempted by Satan. Every Every temptation we face is an invitation to sin and to reject the truth. The same is true for Christ in this situation. This gospel reading from Matthew is the record of Satan's attempt to capture the mind of Christ for depravity. Jesus faces three temptations, which he fends off with the word of God, specifically with three quotes from Deuteronomy, the law of God, the second giving of the law of God. So let's conclude by looking at the first temptation and seeing how it might apply to our own temptations. In this temptation, Satan tries to get a hungry Jesus to turn stones into bread. Jesus quotes God's law from Deuteronomy. Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word of God is life. This is clear from the Incarnation itself, described in John's Gospel at at chapter 1, verse 14, when John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is also what Peter means when he says to Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We make idols because we think we have have to in order to survive. We construct unbiblical, non-Christian identities, sexual and otherwise, because we think we have no no other way to live. That is a lie. We can live by the words that proceed from the mouth of God. We can identify with them. We live by them when we we identify with them and start becoming like them. For someone who bases his identity on same-sex attraction, he could do worse the next time he is tempted to engage in certain certain behavior to quote from God's law, just as Jesus did when he was tempted. So Jesus' temptation here in the wilderness wilderness gives us uh, the story of 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 a heroic titanic struggle to capture the mind of Christ, to, to, to render it inert, to turn it into a slave of the devil, using temptations. And, and Jesus shows us as a weapon against that in that struggle is the very word of God, the law of God. So if you're, uh, if someone is, if you are basing your identity on same-sex attraction, you could do worse than quote from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, saying, it is written, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You could certainly do much worse than flee temptation by running to these words. And you might even find that they give you the strength to resist and overcome. Much is promised to those who resist and overcome. At the end of his temptations, Matthew tells us that angels came and ministered to him. Can we expect no less? Can we not expect angels to come and minister to us in our times of trial? Jesus assures us in Matthew 24, verse 13, that he who endures to the end will be saved. I have focused today on an old story that lends its name to an old sin. But each of us has our besetting sins. We must learn to hate them. I read yesterday about the joint euthanasia of the former Dutch prime minister and his wife. According to reports, they died hand in hand, which was a charming way of saying they died by their own hands. The Washington Post blithely reports, they chose to die. Think about that for a second. They chose to die. (laughs) <laughs> okay. They chose to die by what is known as duo-euthanasia, a growing trend in the Netherlands, where a small number of couples have been granted their wish to die in unison in recent years, usually by a lethal dose of a drug. Friends, this is murder. When Satan tempts us this way, we could do worse than to quote from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It is written, you shall not murder The former Dutch prime minister and his wife could have done worse than to quote those words to Satan and to themselves, but now I fear the worst for them. 
I'm often critical of, of Roman Catholic practices, but here I will commend them. Roman Catholics are taught to pray often for the grace of a holy death. In our own prayer book, prayer book tradition, the customary words read at the grave while the corpse is made ready to be laid into the earth include this petition to Jesus. Suffer us not at our last hour for any pains of death to fall from thee. Christ suffered his trifled temptations in the, at the end, at the end of his 40-day fast. In the same way, the church has always known that temptations of all sorts regain their strength toward the end of our lives as our own strength wanes. One temptation, the one which in fact begat the original sin, is the temptation to become like God. This temptation always leads one to deny that God alone is the author of life. I fear that this poor Dutchman and his wife, though they died holding hands, will never again feel a human touch. They will call to each other from the depths of eternity, and there will be no answer. Suffer us not indeed, O Lord, at our last hour, for any pains of death to fall from you. Pray indeed, my friends, that you will die well. Defeat the tempter in your last hour with these words from Psalm 17, verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Remember, I said likeness is like identity. It means identity, right? Or This is basically saying, God, when I go to sleep in death, when I go to sleep in, in death in Jesus' arms, I want to wake up and be satisfied looking like you identifying with you and only you. I read the other day of the funeral mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City for the transgender activist Cecilia Gentili. Her eulogist called her Saint Cecilia, to which the congregation responded, Mother of all the whores. Quite a sight. You can see it on Twitter. I've linked to it here. The reporter noted that the packed cathedral congregation seemed not to know the words to the liturgical responses which the priest tried to lead them during, in which the priest tried to lead them during the course of the service. At one point, the celebrant Father Edward, Father Edward Doherty said, Cecilia died with Christ. Now, whatever this woman's eternal fate is, this is not what that particular congregation needed to hear. The priest was tempted to demonstrate what can only be described as misplaced kindness. Kindness. I know because I've succumbed to the same temptation myself in my own ministry. He might have answered his tempter and edified the congregation with the words of Paul in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 19. It is written, their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They glory in their shame. Paul wrote these words with tears in his eyes for the, for the enemies of the cross of Christ. Do we shed any tears for these lost souls? Or do we go along with the lie that we are supposed to celebrate them? The priest might also have responded to temptation with the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13. It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Why robbers? Because robbers steal the truth about God and replace it with a lie. The truth is that man is made in the image of God. God says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The depraved mind hates this truth and loves the lie that men and women are interchangeable, that men's bodies can be transformed into women's bodies and vice versa, that sex is just some act. The old prayer book puts it this way when it talks about the reason for getting married. Married. It calls it a remedy for lust so that we might not be like brute beasts that have no understanding. Folks, that's what we're becoming, brute beasts that have no understanding. When we think men are women and women are men, and that marriage can be 
changed into something that or diminished into a, a, a union, a bond between two sames and t- instead of two opposites that God created, then, then, then we, we've lost understanding. We're becoming like brute beasts. The, the, the depraved mind hates the truth and loves the lie. The mind of Christ is, is the truth and loves God. And what does Paul tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, that we believers have? He tells us that we have the mind of Christ, Christian, Christ is your identity. Christ is your likeness. Christ is your identity now and for eternity. Amen. Now let's turn to some of the questions for reflection and discussion. The story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah depicts God's what and what? It depicts his judgment and wrath. Number two, what revolution beginning in the 1960s has since been established in law? And the answer is the sexual revolution. Number three, God God agreed to spare Sodom after who interceded for the city, after Abraham interceded for the city. Explain how Abraham's nephew Lot benefited from God's covenant with Abraham. The men of Lot pull Lot and his family, sorry, the men, the the angels, the the angelic visitors, pull Lot and his family to, to safety. Number five, describe the outcry that has reached God's ears from Sodom and Gomorrah. The answer is widespread, total, all-inclusive sexual depravity among the men of Sodom. Number six, how many righteous men were found in Sodom, and did God break his previous promise to Abraham to spare the city? And the answer is none, zero, and no, God did not break his promise. Question number seven, what is the plain meaning of Genesis chapter 1, verse 16? God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And the plain meaning is that God created every species with different intent and purpose and set the boundaries between them. Question number eight, explain the revisionist premise. The answer is, the Bible does not speak using contemporary categories. It therefore does not and cannot speak to contemporary contemporary issues at all. That's the revisionist premise. Although they will use contemporary categories to criticize and critique and evaluate the Bible, but they will not submit themselves and listen to the Bible and accept it as God's word. That's the the revisionist the revisionist uh, premise. Number nine, the effect of idolatry is 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 what sexual and otherwise. The effect of idolatry idolatry is blank, sexual and otherwise. And the answer is nine, confusion. The effect of idolatry is confusion, sexual and otherwise. You can see that with the revisionists. They make something that is clear, like the word of God, and confuse it. Number ten, the depraved mind blank with the idols of its own making. What does the the depraved mind do with the idols of its own making? And the answer is it identifies with the idols of its own making. Number 12, we make idols and embrace non-Christian identities because we think we have to, or we have to, in order to what? In order to survive. We make our idols and we embrace all of these unbiblical, non-unchristian uh, ideas and identities because we think we have to in order to survive. And if you think that's not you, uh, next time you are um, uh, in a situation where you are being uh, asked to contradict or at least sit through something that contradicts the plain meaning of Scripture, the Word of God, your faith as a Christian, ask yourself what will happen if you speak up. Ask yourself what will happen if you... Um, if you if you say nothing, and, and you know what that that the hard, that's a hard position to be in, particularly if you've got a, a family to support, um, it's very easy to go, give into the temptation at that point to uh, accept the identity that's being foisted on you because that identity promises you job security, uh, social acceptance, promotion, um, 
and, and all of the things you think you need to live. Uh, the fact is we do need a roof over our head and, and food and clothing. Uh, but Jesus says uh, the sparrows have their nests uh, and, 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 and does not God know uh, that you are worth more than many sparrows? God knows what you need and he will provide. And part of having faith is knowing that and putting your identity in Christ um, enough identifying enough with Christ so that you can benefit from the covenant that God has made with his son and, and, and that extends to you. God will provide for you. He will take care of you. God is the defender of widows and orphans. Throughout the Bible, we read that. God making provision for his people. Number 12, the opposite of a depraved mind of the depraved mind is what? The mind of Christ. All, all that I've just said. The opposite of a depraved mind, which... Uh, hates the truth and loves the lie. The mind of Christ loves the truth, uh, is the truth and loves God. Parents and grandparents, you are responsible to apply God's word to your children's lives. Here is some help. Young children, draw a picture about something you heard in the sermon. Explain your pictures to your parents after, after church. Older children, do one or both of the following. Count how many times the word idol or idolatry is mentioned. Uh, number two, discuss with your parents your favorite character in a book. And then discuss in what ways do you identify with this character and, and discuss why you want to be like this character or, or maybe why you don't want to be like this character. Well, that is my sermon for this first Sunday of Lent. I, I uh, uh, pray your blessing on all of you this week. I ask your prayers uh, for discernment and uh, guidance for my family and I as we, as we seek to see where God places us next in our ministry. Uh, God bless you all. Um, amen.